Hey, you. Yes, you. Do you know all the cool stuff Sacred Cows Tonight is coming up for you in the next couple of months? No? Well, here goes. This upcoming January will be a bonus month, and we'll be bringing you two episodes. On January 17th, 2018, we'll have our Star Wars The Last Jedi panel, featuring Tim Lanning, Jennifer Cheek, Adam Bash, and Michaela Ray. Don't miss it, and see the movie a few times beforehand so you're ready. On January 31st, 2018, we will have our 2018 Year in Review in Advance episode, which will also feature... Pete and Mike going over what we predicted for the 2017 movie year in review in advance episode, so you can see just how wrong we were. And to help us call out those errors, we've got our guest and editor, Eli Ramsey, who is also guesting on this very episode. And finally, in February, we'll be talking about Firefly with our guests Rob Weeks and Sean Faust, so get ready for that episode too. There is so much good stuff coming, and I'm so excited about that, but we have to put that aside for now and get right to our review of A Christmas Story, featuring Eli Ramsey. Enjoy! Ah, Christmas. That beautiful time of year when peace on earth and goodwill toward men interrupts the dull melancholy of a Midwestern Rust Belt life. But this Christmas, there were stranger things in store for we, the people of Homan, Indiana, as a major staffing change was about to be made at Higby's department store. Hello and welcome to Higby's, and thank you for coming in for this interview. Uh, oh, well, I, I thought I heard someone come in. You did. Oh, jeez. Uh, hi there. Sorry, I I still don't see you. You won't. Let's just continue. Um, okay. Well, as you and probably everyone else in Homan are well aware, we had to fire and prosecute last year's Santa and his helpers on multiple counts of cruelty to children. How terrible. Yes. Uh, well, I can assure you that no one was more appalled than Higby Store Management. So this year, we are correcting the situation by employing the kindest, gentlest, jolliest Santa Claus the department store industry has ever seen. Well, you've definitely found your man. Just call me Chris Kringle, because you're looking at your new Santa. Am I? You bet! Just show me where the brats are. Well, hold on now. Since there was such a high-profile scandal and public outrage regarding this last year, I will be personally chaperoning the new Santa for the first day, just to make sure we don't have a repeat of last year. Oh, I'm totally fine working under direct supervision. You should have seen me back in my longboat oarsman days. I don't know what that means, but I can tell you that I like you for some reason. You've got the job. There's just one small thing that worries me. And that is the fact that you seem to be invisible, intangible, and have no lap to sit on. Minor details, boss. You won't regret this. The next day, Higby's was absolutely packed with joyful children, all of them eager at the chance to tell the new Santa about their Christmas hopes and dreams. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Saturnalia! Christmas. Christmas. Right, I meant Christmas. Who's next? Um, hi, Santa. Uh, where should I sit? I guess you're supposed to just sit, 
on this Santa suit we've draped over the chair? Right in about the lap region. There we go. Ho, ho, ho. What would you like for Christmas, little boy? I want a choo-choo train. Okay, a choo-choo train. Red. I want a red one, not a blue one and not a green one. A red one. That seems a little picky. Wouldn't you be happy with any train? No, a red one. Listen, you little brat. When I was a kid in Babylon and I wanted a bunch of animal bones to play with, do you think I gave a shit what color they were? No, we were just happy to not get slaughtered by the Assyrians that year. Uh-oh, down the slide. Merry Christmas. How'd I do, boss? Um, well, it was a good first try, but I think I'd suggest being a little more agreeable with the children from now on. Oh, okay. I can do agreeable. Here's another one. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Now, what would you like this year, sonny boy? I want a Red Rider carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. Ooh, that's a nice thought, little boy. But I don't know if it's very safe. Here, I'll handle this. Kid, don't you think you want something with more firepower? Wait, what? Yeah, an invading army is not even going to blink at that pathetic little thing. You need serious artillery. But don't you think he'll shoot his eye out? He's he's just a little kid. Nonsense. I had a catapult that shot Greek fire when I was his age. Oh boy, I'm going to ask my dad if I can have a real gun for Christmas. Wahoo! Um, Merry Christmas. Look, don't you think that it was irresponsible encouraging that kid? What's irresponsible is waving a pellet shooter around when the barbarian horde is at your gate. Man, what are you anyway? I'm your Santa Claus! Ho, ho, ho! And what would you like for Christmas, little girl? Well, nothing pink or bedazzled, that's for sure. I'm thinking some STEM toy, like a chemistry set. I like you, little girl. But a kid's chemistry set, don't you think that's a little wimpy? Oh, great. I'll tell you what. I'm going to refer you to my associate, who manufactures sulfuric acid in Gary. You're fired. All the next year, and for many years after, when the snow began to fall and the air grew cold, the children of Homan, Indiana would press their little noses against frosted window panes to see if that invisible monster that once masqueraded as Santa Claus had come back to terrorize their town again. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's Sacred Cows Tonight! With your hosts... Mike and Pete, featuring Disembodied Voice Guy, with special guest Eli Ramsey, featuring the Sacred Cows Tonight Band. And now welcome your hosts, Mike and Pete. Thanks, Disembodied Voice Guy. Say, Disembodied Voice Guy. Yes, Pete? At this time of year, I like to think about all the good times in years past. Uh, What would you say is your favorite holiday memory? Ah, Pete. We're of the same mind on this one. I, too, like to sit and reminisce about holidays gone by. My family used to sit by the fire, singing merry songs and eating chestnuts. Ah, sounds nice. Every once in a while, Papa, 
dearest papa, would get up to throw another log on the fire. Oh wait, did I say log? Silly me, I meant victim. He'd get up to throw another victim on the fire. Uh Uh-huh, right, right. And I believe I may have said, we'd eat chestnuts. What I meant to say was that we'd call upon the dark gods in an unholy ritual during the witching hour of the night while eating chestnuts. Yep, us too. It would be about this time that Mother, bless her heart, would remember that we had completely forgotten to make a blood sacrifice. Uh Uh-huh, so, wait a minute. Ah, um, gee, this is all, uh, a bit more twisted than I was expecting. I know! I had you going for a while. What kind of monster do you think I am? Well... Don't answer that. Welcome to the Sacred Cows Podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Pete. And with us, we've got our special guest, our very own editor, the wonderful Eli. Hey! Hey, uh, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Like I was telling you earlier, um, I'm very happy to be here because I've never actually listened to the show, so I'm excited to see how you all do this thing. (laughs) But but if you've never listened to it, how do you edit it? Well, you know what? Your secrets are your secrets. I I have a very uh, specific process, and it seems to be working so far. All right. Very specific proprietary process. Well, you have been associated with the show for a good long time, so we are happy to finally invite you uh, to the other side of the microphone, the part you talk into. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Again, happy to be here. So, Eli, in your professional career, do you prefer to go by Eli, like Cher, or uh, do you prefer to go with Eli Ramsey? It doesn't matter, really. Um, Either is fine. I'm not really at the level of share, so I think going by a single name would uh, be a little bit too much at this point, but give me like a year and it'll only be Eli. I already have plans in place to legally change my name to just Eli, so. I see. Well, I mean, with uh, with you know your exposure as an editor on here and then on the Hoof and Sword podcast as a vocal performer and comedian, uh, you're well on your way to being Eli. I I don't know if I would go so far as to say comedian as guy who just says random stuff on the internet uh, and hopes it's funny. That's all any of us are doing. So, (laughs) so tell us, Uh, tell us about, uh, is that the thing you'd want to promote today? Yeah. uh, So hoof and sword is a, uh, it's a real play RPG podcast. Uh, We use the tales of Equestria game system, which was built around the, my little pony world. Uh, it's me and some friends. We have a really fun time. Uh, I play a, some might say failed magician. Uh, I choose to say very selective on his abilities. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a really fun time. We really love doing it. Yeah, it's it's great. Some would say failed magician, but he would hesitate to say magician. <laughs> just failed. Yes, yes. Failed something. No, sounds like, sounds idiosyncratic. It's pretty clear if you listen to the show. Mike, why don't you tell us why we're all here today? We're here ostensibly to talk about the 1983 uh, Christmas comedy film called A Christmas Story, directed by Bob Clark and based on Gene Shepard's semi-fictional anecdotes in his 1966 book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. I read that pretty much verbatim from uh, the top line of Wikipedia, so thank you, Wikipedians. Yeah, I really like the name of that novel, and I guess I didn't know that it was based on a novel, although I could have suspected it just uh, has always been this 
movie that's always been there for, well, all but one year of my life, and uh, kind of has a, a Wonder Years-ish feel to it, so it's a classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like uh, as we're all sitting here and drinking eggnog and, 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 you know, talking about this, I think it's appropriate to say, when was your first exposure to this movie? Eli, let's start with you. So my first exposure to the movie, I don't remember when I first like saw it all the way through, but my first memory of the movie is it playing on 24 hours and me catching bits and pieces of it uh, throughout Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. That's that's the most prominent memory I have with this movie. Right. The uh, the Turner networks have been running this uh, 24 hours on Christmas Eve or whatever it is uh, since 1997, I read. So, wow. Uh, 20 years now. That's a mm-hmm. long time. Yeah. I think that also explains why you can't find it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or anywhere that you don't have to pay for it explicitly. Uh, Pete, what was your first exposure? Uh, so this movie came out in 1983. Um, it's been there as long as I can remember now. Of course, when I think of a Christmas classic from my childhood, I'm probably thinking Home Alone or National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, uh, Scrooged, another one that uh, the family watched a lot. But this one was there, too. Um, And if you know me, you know that we didn't actually own any movies as a kid. And almost everything I remember from my childhood is a TV edit with commercials in it. And that is exactly how I remember this. And, And like you said, Eli, you'd come into it maybe you'd start halfway through the movie and you'd leave and you'd come into like the beginning later Mm -hmm. and the end later so you know in the end um sequentially though it doesn't really matter too much in this movie (laughs) so i think this is a good one for that kind of viewing mike uh how did this color your childhood and and beyond okay well let's see uh i think i swear that my first viewing of this was in the 90s when we used to have um huge family Christmas gatherings at my grandfather's house. And um, somebody had a VH brought a VHS tape of this in um, because they had seen it when they were kids because, um, well, my cousins were kids in the uh, old enough to remember movies and stuff in the, in the time when this came out in 1983. So, so they, they had it and for them it was like old hat already. So for me, it was like, okay, oh, this, this is, weird it takes place in the 50s and i just remember i didn't know when it came out when i was a kid when i first saw it i had to have been like, like 10 or 11 and uh i just remember okay. thinking like oh my god this is a movie like this must have been filmed in the 50s you know <laughs> boy was i wrong hard to tell right they do a very good job i think of not having any anachronisms in it uh it seems to be very 50s ish mm-hmm. yeah although wasn't the book uh, stories of the author growing up in like the 30s and 40s. They might have changed the time period a little bit based on what was popular because in the early 80s wasn't like the 50s kind of a popular time, like with Happy Days going on and uh, that. I think this would have taken place in the in the 30s. Uh, I'm not not really sure. So according to IMDb, the film is set in the 40s. Okay. Ah. Uh... That makes sense. You can kind of tell by the cars. They don't look like 57 Chevys. Mm-hmm. They look, you know, somewhat older. Yeah. Is it post-war or, or, or pre-war? I don't know why. I was thinking about that the whole time we were watching. I think if it was during I think if it was during the war, they would have mentioned it at least once. But it seems to be a pretty, you know, peacetime movie. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. 
Okay, all right. When the worst enemy you had to deal with was a coonskin cap wearing bully next door. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we all got our, our, our own memories out of uh, the way for this, um, I think it's time to get into the, the deep talk. So, Eli, as our guest and uh, resident expert, maybe, uh, would you be willing to give <laughs> us the 10,000-foot view of this? Sure. Um, so... A Christmas Story is the story of the trials and tribulations a young boy goes through in 1940s during Christmas time as he tries to convince the world that he's old enough and responsible enough to get a BB gun. That's it. Pretty much in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, it's a series of vignettes, really, It's that... Um, Mm-hmm. that really there's there's multiple plot threads going on um at at the same time and the um narrator of this story which is an older Ralphie looking back is basically telling uh the story about him getting this BB gun but also telling like about you know the crazy things that his old man did and the the war between his dad and his mom over this leg lamp and the time that he got soap in his mouth because he was a cussing little guy. Yeah, the, like you said, many different sub subplots and side quests going on to the main BB gun, uh, Red Rider BB gun thing. You know, the first thing I noticed about this movie after having watched it was it's kind of a foul-mouthed little movie with some, you know, uh, you know, parental guidance needed moments in it. Mm-hmm. It feels like. Um, I can't remember if the TV edit would have been that way or not, but I'm surely I surely would have watched the TV edit. I'm thinking. Well, I don't I don't know if it's really a foul mouthed little movie because most of the time when there's a lot of cursing going on, it's it really sound it sounded to me when I was watching it like it was all just gibberish. It is, and the reason it was gibberish is because you know the the main character is kind of censoring himself through his memories. Yeah, that's true. When the old man swears, it's meant to be like the, you know, like the parents on the peanuts where it's just like, wah, wah, yeah. wah, wah. it's just noise. Well, it's, it, to me, it's more like a, a Warner Brothers cartoon as a in as reality, because you'd hear him say mm-hmm. like dad gummit and things like that, which if you ever heard like yeah. know, old Warner Brothers cartoons, they do that all the time. That's, you know, their substitution for goddammit to get past the censors. And uh, mm-hmm. only one time do I actually remember him actually saying, damn it. Like after the turkey's taken by the Bumpus's dogs, they they see a few of the old, you know, the going down the line of the choice swear words, which used to be really bad, but now you can say them all on the radio. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's not like they they actually drop the f bomb at all, although it is heavily implied. I'll have you know, they say it at least once, and it's a long drawn out because fudge, pardon my French, is is the worst word you could possibly say. <laughs> That's uh. right. <laughs> That dang fudge, I swear. And I'm I'm sorry I keep using it. Uh, I don't know what's come over me. <laughs> we'll bleep you out later. Okay, so, sounds good. Wait, it's your job, though, so you <laughs> might forget. <laughs> Never mind. What, what I like about this movie is it, it's it's portrayal of kids. Like, it's an earnest portrayal of kids. Another, like, fair comparison to, like, Charlie Brown. Um, like, like, the Peanuts sort of is like, this is a, you know, Charlie Brown is a depressed child, and, and this is a picture of kids with, with those kind of things. This is like uh this is like regular kids and like their willingness to get away with things and pull one over on adults and be pranksters and stuff like that. Sort of a childhood mischievousness 
Yeah. Yeah. This movie dispenses a little wisdom to that effect uh, when the this kid in an iconic moment gets his tongue stuck to a pole after they dare him, to, sorry, triple dog dare him to do it. And the teacher's like, well, he won't say who did it, but I know the guilt you're feeling is worse than any punishment you could have had. And they're like, <laughs> fucking not it's you know, always better to not get caught so yeah. we you know we got away well with it. and they didn't really pull it off that artfully too because all the other kids go to the window and then the two kids that put him up to it are just sitting in the in their seats like dur, dur, dur. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like we already know what's out there <laughs> don't ask us how we know <laughs> yeah the kids are obviously they think they're awesome. Uh, there's a scene where the son is, tr- the main character is trying to be tactful about hinting at a BB gun. Actually, he does Ralphie, this a bunch. Yeah. And he is the m- most tactless, yeah, Rack- Ralphie. He thinks he is being so clever and subtle and like a master of manipulation, and it couldn't be more transparent and, you know, ham fisted than it is. <laughs> it's It's pretty funny. It's how kids are. Yeah. So what do you guys what do you guys think of of uh, each of the uh subplots i guess uh, what what is the most memorable one for you what's the one that you uh like or dislike the most Eli, you got any uh... yeah i i think the one that stands out most to me aside from the one at the very end where after the turkey's been ruined they end up going to the chinese chinese restaurant cuz that one you know that one gets parodied or lampooned all the time sure. and and referenced um for a little subtly racist good time yeah yeah at the, yeah. Uh, at the end there the uh the scene where ralphie has finally had enough and just all this shit has been thrown at him the entire movie and he's just had a bad day and then he gets confronted by the the two characters who who have who have been picking on him and his friends the entire time, and he just goes ham on that one really big kid. Scott, fuck, uh, just beats the crap out of him. Yeah, yeah. That that scene really stands out to me. Just and and I'm I'm not sure if it's just because the scene itself is so out of character for Ralphie up until that point or what, but that's the one that stands out to me. Yeah, and there's blood, and there's exactly you know yeah. more of the. You know, cartoonish Cur- cursing with no actual cursing. Sucker, rucker, dicker, rucker, Smack, smack, smack. That's one of the scenes I definitely remembered. Um, there were there were a few things that popped up in this movie because I don't watch it every year. I really don't. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, that one stuck in my mind. Quite I handily. love how self important Ralphie is to himself. That like he's like, in, yeah. When he's telling the story, he's like in in a. Th- in a moment that will be uh, forever referred to by the, in the neighborhood as the Scott Farkas affair, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just subtext. Ralphie is a badass. Yeah. <laughs> he does think very well, what kid isn't, you know, almost entirely self-centered. It kind of strikes me that, that Ralphie seems to me to be the kind of kid who for years after that would bring it up as like the one cool thing he did so like years from now or years from then his friends are like oh my god are you gonna tell the story again and he just continues to bring it up all the time <laughs> only the way they said it was oh my gosh are you gonna tell that story again yeah At their high school reunion and stuff like that. yeah i feel like the most visually uh iconic thing from this show has got to be 
that leg lamp that uh, the old man, the dad, uh, who is uh, Darren McGavin, a.k.a. Kolchak the Night Stalker, <laughs> I think the most colorful character in this movie. Uh, definitely. But yeah, he wins that leg lamp. And anybody who's ever been to a Spencer Gifts uh, around Christmas time has probably seen that you can actually buy one of these things. Yes. Um, it's It's got to be the probably the most lasting, uh, what, what would you call that, um, cultural thing from this movie. Yeah. The way that they, it, you know, you could stop talking about it there, but the way that people act when this lamp is around, it's like this... It's like this weird, like, fetish object that, like, men become totally irrationally aroused by it and women become equally irrationally repulsed and angered by it and the kids just can't stop staring at it and everyone in the whole neighborhood and the dad, like, forms this attachment to it and the mother will do everything in her power to, you know, basically destroy it. Um, which she ends up doing. I like the scene where she like walks into the house as they're leaving to turn the light off and says, well, we've got to save electricity, but you can see that every other light in the house has been left yeah. on, so she just <laughs> wanted to <laughs> turn it off. I don't know. That was the thing I noticed about the lamp was the way it made people act. It was just, it it had a really over-the-top effect on everybody. So, And, you know, it was kind of funny. I think part of that is because it's being told from the viewpoint of such a small child, like the over exaggerated reactions and, and yeah, his mom probably didn't like it. And I'm sure when the lamp broke, she was like, Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. And, and his dad really liked it. But I, I think, I think the over exaggerated nature of everyone in the house and in the neighborhood reacting to the lamp is lends credence to the fact that Ralphie is not a reliable narrator at all. Um, no. between this and his retelling of how that huge fight went down. Yeah, a little little earlier conversation before the tape started rolling. Wow, I just dated myself. Uh, but yeah, Mike, you you'd noted that as well. I know you're a fan of the reliable narrator concept in general. Yeah, it's, it's one of the very few... Or, sorry, unreliable. It's one of the very few movies that pulls it off pretty well. I mean, it's not like American psycho where you know there is no narrator but you know it's the unreliable mm -hmm. camera that's basically um in uh the protagonist's head but and this is literally an unreliable narrator where he's like talking about uh, in the scott farkas affair that he you know basically was an animal and you know just i'm kind of awesome and blah 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 and, and really you can see this is just a kid who's in pain and and, and you know snapped basically so yeah makes a big deal out right of it. Right. Yeah. And then the, the lamp thing, too, is uh, I think part of the unreliable narrator thing in this movie is that he builds up his old man as as this huge character that's like known by everyone in like my from miles around Lake Michigan. You know, the most feared <laughs> yeah. furnace fighter in Indiana. Uh, I had to look up what a furnace fighter was. No, it's nothing. It's something that was made up. It's a well-known fact. The old man loves turkey and, and, you know, nobody get in his way when there's turkey yeah, around. Right. You know? <laughs> so, and stuff like that. And so this was just like another one of his tall tales about his dad, who ultimately, you know, he has an attachment with, uh, which you can, you know, it's sort of, um, you can see at the end of the movie when the dad sort of takes pity on him because like the world is working against him to get this BB gun. But yeah, like you say, the dad who was, 
not only the most colorful character in the show, but he, he's the hero in the end because he ends up providing the object that literally every other adult in the entire book and fate it's your movie and fate itself has conspired to keep out of his hands mm-hmm. his, his bb gun he just delivers it to him uh mike any other threads uh in the movie mike or eli i should say that uh, really stick out to you i think that uh that one that really sticks out to me is probably uh it's it's simple it's stupid but it just completely describes like the relationship between um kids and teachers is like the the stupid prank that they do in the very beginning of the movie when they're all wearing the silly teeth mm-hmm. and things like that mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you see that the the teacher is like gathering all the teeth and then she just got this drawer of all the dumb things that the kids have tried to do to her to get a rise out of her and from over yeah. the years and you can see that you know she's seen like everything a kid could possibly ever try to do. Yeah, but she still cracks a smile. A oh yeah, little bit you know she she finds it endearing. Yeah, it gives her joy. I think I think that's one of the things that uh, that you don't really see in like in like modern movies is like just like the acknowledgement of adults like saying, oh, yeah, kids will be kids. You know, let them have fun and goof around." No, you really don't see that a lot anymore. <laughs> You're right. I, and like I said, it's kind of sappy, but it, it's it's there. Well, this this movie is a series of moments like that. It's really one of those movies where, you know, yes, there are several distinct plot threads, but it's just a series of scenes that kind of function, at least from a, a humor standpoint, they function independently of each other. Mm-hmm. Did you guys notice that they got like the kid dynamics kind of right as far as like uh you know the interplay with kids not just with like the kids and the bullies but the but the but Ralphie his brother and their little gang with Flick and I don't remember the other kid uh and then uh you know with like how the etiquette of the dare the dare was it's like totally something I remember yeah. even before I watched this uh thing there is that whole like thing when you're a kid of this stuff is passed down from kid generation to kid generation on the playground mm-hmm. yeah for sure yeah it's like gene shepherd was actually a kid right once, well and, and, he, and he remembered, remembered it, it <laughs> long enough to tell the tale <laughs> like i remember when i was a kid that this stuff existed all these things that kids you know tell each other these stories and these rules they set up but i don't remember any of it except you know like the things that were mentioned in this movie it's because we forgot, and this movie reminded us of those specific things, but then you think, well, what else was there? You know, there were dumb little rules for everything. You know, you make up a game for everything. So, mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea to talk about things that, that you, you question um, being good in this movie or things that, you, you know, criticisms, I guess. We'll let, we'll let Eli go, yeah. of course, our esteemed guest. So, so as I was watching it today, um, you know, the official runtime is, uh, is, is just over 90 minutes. Uh, but as I was watching it, it, it felt at multiple times, like it should have been over already. Uh, and it's, it just, it feels like a movie that has a bunch of places that it could end and should end, but just keeps going. It, it, it felt very, very slow to me and not slow in the sense of, oh, well, this is a movie made in the eighties. So you know, they, they had different, it just, I felt like it was even slow considering the time period it was made in. 
the timeline of the movie is kind of confused because, like you said, it feels a little long at times. I think what I was experiencing was, oh, this scene that I remember hasn't even happened yet, or oh, this scene I haven't remember or I remember hasn't even happened yet. So it felt like there was a lot of. It always felt like there was a lot of the movie left to go, mm-hmm. but there's always something happening, so you can kind of like. I mean, it's never like um, one of my criticisms of uh, uh, Young Frankenstein last episode was that, you know, it felt slow. The pacing was slow. But unlike that movie and this movie, like the scene, like the screen is never just showing like a more or less still image. I mean, there's always something happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Crowded. Maybe the movie feels a little crowded. Yeah, Uh, that might be it. That's how I I might put it. But no, I, I agree. Eli, you're partly right, and Pete, you're partly right, too. And I think it's because of the things that you're both describing. When I think about this movie, I think about, like, being that it's a series of vignettes, there's a lot of, uh, it's like a, like a like a piece of music played by, like, a, you know, five-piece orchestra or five-piece string section or something like that, where, like, you're getting one theme, like, when you're talking about, like, the Bumpus's dogs, like... Why did that show up in the beginning of the movie? Well, uh, you don't know other than like, oh, it's it's funny. There's there's a bunch of dogs that, that that are, you know, basically running roughshod around the neighborhood and they love to pick on the old man. Um, but, you know, where does that pay off? Well, that doesn't pay off until after really the end of the main plot of the movie and they're in the epilogue already. And, and that's where, you know, things might be getting long is like the movie could have ended when Ralphie got his his BB gun and, and, you know, that was be pretty much it, you know, cause it feels like an ending, but then they have to pay mm-hmm. off the Bumpus's yeah. dog thing, like with the getting the Turkey thing there. And then, well, they have to actually then close the movie off happily. So they have to show, you know, the dinner at the Chinese restaurant. And then, well, that's sort of happy because, you know, mommy's kind of squeamish about the, the duck head <laughs> getting cut off. The kids love it. Um, so they have to really just kind of wrap it up with like mom and dad sort of reconciling the leg lamp thing, which they sort of had that rift between the two of them, you know, at the end of the movie when they're just turn all the lights off and they're sitting and watching the snowfall, you know, showing that like, hey, no hard feelings about this whole thing. So it's all these different plot threads having to come together. And instead of like doing like a modern movie pacing where they come together at once and, and like sort of tie up nicely, they tie them all up in like sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike lost, they decided they actually had to tie up all their loose ends. So, right. But yeah, it seems like it missed a lot of potential endings that could have been, and just keeps going and mm-hmm. keeps going and keeps going. You know, the office could have ended when Jim and Pam got married, but it kept going another six seasons or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. They said, you'll shoot your eye out. So he had to injure his eye. I mean, <laughs> so. yeah, you're right. <laughs> The hesitation I had with this movie going into it was that as far as movies you remember from your childhood uh, around Christmas time, this may not be one of the most exciting ones to a kid. Um, Again, you know, I think of things like Home Alone. It's nonstop action packed. You think of like the Grinch. At least that's a cartoon, right? Um National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is that movie that you were definitely too young to watch, but your parents loved it so much they had it. The whole family watched it anyway. <laughs> um, and then there was this, you know, it kind of, uh, you know, a little bit slower, a little bit more thoughtful, uh, you know, narrated by an old, an old sounding adult and that kind of thing. 
but you know, uh, as an adult watching it, I actually found it quite a bit more charming uh, than I remembered it. Probably because now I was watching it from the you know adult's perspective on the kids, and ha ha ha, you know, this is kind of funny. Whereas as a kid, you know, you're self conscious but not self aware, so you know, you're not really getting that this is a story about you really Mm -hmm. so that that's how i felt about it so it it was actually uh quite charming i thought on this watch through uh as a result so that so what i mean is that was a the incorrect perception on my part (laughs) Uh, i i think my biggest my biggest question about this and, and obviously we'll get to it um when we're talking about whether it's sacred or not um is um i i was wondering when i was watching this how the references will play for somebody who's watching it that's further along than the generation that all of us are in you know the um, you know i think we're all well we're all millennials here basically uh eli you're probably the youngest one but you know pete and i are at the very beginning of that i I assume or the end of the other one depending on who you ask and uh Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know we we hear about all these different things they're they're um, referring to here, um, you know, like, like the old department stores and and uh, you know radio plays and things like that, uh, sort of through the nostalgic filter of our parents. Well, and in some ways because podcasts have sort of brought back radio plays, but <laughs> but, but still, right. still, um, you know, all these other things and like the the way that electricity was and things like that. A lot of these things that we're seeing in this movie are stuff that we learned about in like history class and things like that. So I just wonder how it will play going forward past this. Right. We're, we're, this is already beyond our generation, the things that we're seeing on the screen. But like you said, there are some timeless things about the schoolyard that go from one generation to the other. Mike uh, or Eli, did either of you find yourself identifying? I found when I watched this movie this time, I was not identifying with Ralph, who was a small child, uh, but I was identifying with the old man. I totally identified with the old man. You know, the the dad who maybe swears a little bit too much in front of the family, but has a heart of gold, you know, gets enthusiastic about family time, that kind of thing, and don't want to say the hero at the end, but... <laughs> But he was the hero in this movie. I don't know. That's just, you know, it was really interesting to me because it's like, huh, you know, and I didn't notice that I was taking that side until it was close to the end. And it's like, oh, interesting. I guess I'm old now. I actually identified with the department store Santa, uh, (laughs) just ready to be done with a shift, ready to go home, tired of dealing with everybody. Uh, I really identified with him. That's a, well. There you go. At least it wasn't one of his horrible elves. Yeah, <laughs> those elves are awful, especially the one like, "Hurry up, kid!" Blah blah blah. You know. Yeah, <laughs> can get your They're ass just over the worst. There. Oh my god. The actors in that in that just. I wonder how many takes they had just to be mean to kids. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they stretched that out over a week. They were yeah. Enjoy that. <laughs> oh. Um, I think I I think I identified it from the dad too, not from not from necessarily being like the the savior and stuff, because that's usually uh, in my in my life that's probably my wife is the savior, uh, but <laughs> but um, more like like the OCD thing, like I'm gonna change the tire and it's gonna be like in less than four minutes, you know, and things like that, just like the stupid little right, victories right. that you're going for in life. I think that's kind of where I identified with right. him. 
Yeah, no, I was, you know, I wasn't thinking of the dad as the savior, <laughs> at least in relation to myself. But, you know, I definitely saw some, you know, it, it not only did it shine a, a truthful light on the, uh, the child experience, but I thought it was a, a decent look at how, you know, some relationships function as well. Family relationships, not necessarily, you know, from a romantic standpoint, but from a how a household functions type of a thing. I noticed the dad would always try to like, you know, get the kids to do the right thing through, you know, basically talking loudly at them and stuff like that. And the mother would, would, uh, subtly like psychology them into doing it. And she was always the successful one at that. And it's like, well, my wife is a teacher and that's exactly how things go (laughs) at my house. I just start talking loudly at Corbin, like he's, you know, speaks a foreign language. And so I'll talk louder at him. Um, but but she can get him to do what she uh, wants through child psychology. See, I think I think this is um, where uh, the other thing too with the, with the parents is I like the little time like after the narration was happening and they take thirty seconds with just mom or dad like after um, Ralphie got this, had the soap in his mouth and he got sent away and mom was like yelling don't you give me that look and then she's basically looking at the bar of soap and then she puts it in her mouth or she tries it herself. Yeah, and then, sure. Then, like, I'm totally like, yeah, I would totally do that. You know, <laughs> if, if if it was that was me, I would have totally done that too. <laughs> Reminded me of one of those rare scenes where, in Calvin and Hobbes, where neither Calvin or Hobbes are on the on camera, and it's just the parents. They you know have their own little <laughs> things that they do as well, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that would be something like that. Well, and they also spend like 30 seconds with uh, the old man after he's done changing the tire, after they ki- he kicks Ralphie back into the car, and he's like, does check his watch, and he's like, mm-hmm. ah, damn it, you know, basically. <laughs> right. Just goes back to what he was doing. You can tell that he's not particularly concerned that his son just said the F word, <laughs> yeah. but he still has to go back into the car when he's done and make a, make a big deal about it. Yeah, because he obviously, that's where Ralphie learned it is from him, but... <laughs> But something tells me he's not aware of that fact himself. He's probably, you know, not thinking along those lines at all. You know, that poor kid who gets a good whipping after that, though, man. Mm-hmm. The innocent. Well, it's, poor le- Schwartz. it's left ambiguous, but again, I feel like that's another one of the unreliable narrator thing because it sounds like absolute murder is happening on the other end. And, you know, maybe that's real, but probably that's just how he remembers thinking about it. Like, because he. You know, all the kids in the movie are like, oh, Ralphie's going to be killed. He'll, he'll be actually dead. Yeah, you yeah. right. <laughs> all right. Well, do we have anything else before we get into listener questions? We only had uh, one because I, this is my fault, listeners. I did not send it out until uh, yesterday, the day before we recorded. So uh, not too much time for you to get in. And I didn't do the usual uh, several times so people could see it throughout the day. I apologize. Uh, Craig Hart. Uh, friend of the show, any not so subtle ways you've asked for a gift. As a kid, I left out a catalog turned to the page on my parents' bed. Eli, what what about you? I think I was always just the kid who would just straight up ask. Um, and and it's kind of worrying me that I can't really remember much from my childhood right now. Uh, I I don't <laughs> know what that says about me, but I I'm pretty sure you can I was just only remember Ralphie's childhood, right? Yeah, now. I'm pretty sure I was I was just the kid who would just straight up ask, or probably if we went to a store or something, and I'd be like, oh hey, you know that looks cool, but you know whatever, 
that kind of thing where it was pretty obvious that I was saying, Hey, give me this for Christmas, but I wasn't saying it. <laughs> well, you know, as kids, we were, or my family still is, we're, we're list people. <laughs> so we make lists mm-hmm. and we deliver these lists to each other so that everybody can see the list and then you can, you know, get things off the list. Uh, but sometimes that wasn't enough. You know, I, I would, uh, do little drawings, little like margin sketches of a thing I wanted. What is that called? Like the secret or something where like you, you visualize uh, the thing you want. I don't even know why I did that. Probably because I needed something to do with my hands, but yeah, I would just draw it in the margins over and over and over again, electric guitar or whatever. Yeah. I don't remember doing anything too subtle. I mean, I do. Re- I kind of remember being quite explicit. Like we used to get like, we used to go to the mall and get the Sears catalog, not because we'd necessarily buy it from Sears, but because it'd be in the catalog. And then, like, I would circle, <laughs> you know, in the catalog right. when my mom was looking. Yeah. Like, that's not really subtle, though. I, I guess it is, according to this definition. But well, the other thing I remember when I was older, and that's not really subtlety, that's just, like, um, I used to be, like, when I would get some money, I'd be big on just saving up for something. So I would make a list, and I'd keep it in my little piggy bank, of the things that I was saving up for. And then I would decide which one that I want and then check it off the list. So literally my parents, when they got me things for Christmas could just go into my piggy bank. Cause it wasn't exactly, you know, Fort Knox, their piggy banks <laughs> and just look at the <laughs> list and be like, okay, there we go. But I think it was always like micro machines and things like that. I was so into micro machines. <laughs> All right. Craig has one last question and he says, okay, last one thoughts on how they show how miserable the holidays can be for adults while creating joy for the kids. Oh gosh, I don't, I don't know if I saw a lot of misery for adults at all in this movie. I don't think there was a lot of misery in the immediate family, uh, but there were definitely some miserable adults uh, around the holidays. Specifically, the two elves, the department store Santa, Santa. The elves. Yeah. <laughs> um, like they they seem pretty miserable um, and. The guy who was at the end of, well, I guess at the beginning of the line to see Santa, he seemed pretty miserable having to stand in that line. Um, I can I can kind of see it because it, it seems like there are a lot of people who focus too much on the, oh, we have to do this over the holidays and we have to do this. And um, we have so many parties or get togethers to go to and just stress, stress, stress. So I, I kind of think that that aspect of it is what the guy online was dealing with. And the elves and Santa were dealing with the aspect of, oh, all these people are stressed and they're taking it out on me. So I'm going to be super miserable because I have to deal with these parents who are already miserable and these kids who are just screaming at me whenever they get up here. I think that's true. And when you contrast that, actually, I think with um, with Ralphie's family, um, they're the stuff that's sort of making them miserable is just, I don't know, family normal stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like it's like a slice of regular family stuff that just happens to be during the Christmas season in this case with the, you know, the little thing about the lamp sort of uh, putting a leg shaped wedge in their relationship. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, the uh, I think that that's really the only time in the movie that I saw either of the parents truly unhappy was anything regarding that lamp. Again, it really amplifying human emotions 
<laughs> that that object. Yeah. Otherwise, I felt that they were mostly kind of like uh, dealing with the kids' problems, and there was sort of uh, you know musing. They were musing about it. I find it somewhat amusing, even though you know, like, hey, we're t- parents, and we have to have this tough exterior. But again, like the the soap thing, where mom's like taking the bite at the end, and or you know, taking the taste at the end, and then uh, you know the again the the swearing incident by the car where dad's just like okay get in the car and then he's kind of like back to his own deal again are kind of just showing it just like well you know these are are fairly well adjusted people for the time Mm -hmm. i think we're we're just seeing how you know people who are you know content if not like exuberant um are choosing to deal with their kids and that's by you know having a firm hand being a you know disciplinary parent instead of a you know i don't know just that's how parenting maybe was back then Mm -hmm. you put up a tough exterior like you said mike but yeah i don't recall seeing a heck of a lot of overt misery at all in this movie uh except for santa and those elves the the spirit of christmas right there i also liked i also liked how um and eli pointed this out earlier like this family wasn't rushing to go see tons of uh you know, family members and stuff. They just had a pleasant, quiet family Christmas at home, save the whole dogs eating their turkey thing. Yeah. Right. Which makes a good story. They'll be happy that happened in a few years so that they can complain and tell about it. Right. Right, because then when they have kids, then all the kids have to come back there, and then those kids get get upset and distressed. All right, well, uh, we will be right back with our verdict for A Christmas Story. Welcome back, everybody. And now it's time for our verdict on A Christmas Story. Is it sacred? Bovinus Sanctorum, kid. Or should it be put out to pasture? Victor, Victor, excommunicado, as is traditional, Eli, if you want to give your verdict first, it is yours to do or to pass. So I may get a lot of flack about this decision, uh, but I've, I've thought about it and I thought about it while watching the movie and since, but I've got to say not sacred. Like it's it's a movie that a lot of people really enjoy and and as a culture uh, it seems to be enjoyed since you know it gets it gets put on twenty four hours uh, around Christmas time, and I know people who will sit and watch it a few times when it's on. But I just, I just don't get it. I I don't, I don't think it's sacred. Okay, yeah, Christmas story. So you know, I'm gonna call this one sacred, and here's why: it feels like you can't really think of a more classic Christmas movie than a Christmas story. You know, it's been a part of your life, your whole life, pretty much. Um, Now, that being said, I just don't know if a kid would love this movie, but having watched this movie, I just don't know if a kid was the target audience for this movie. I enjoyed it a lot more on my watch through as an adult. I think it belongs in the, you know pantheon of classic christmas movies and um turner can keep playing it 24 hours i probably won't watch it those 24 hours but you know maybe one and a half of them so i'm gonna call it sacred 
So did that make uh, your decision any easier, Mike? No, I feel like that just put me on the spot even more. And it's it's I, I've been turning this one over, I think, so much. And part of me wants to say it's sacred because of the reasons you said. And part of me wants to say it's not because it's going to be hard to relate to. But, oh, um, I have to make a decision. I think it's probably not sacred i'm gonna i'm gonna probably get a lot of flack for that um wow i actually held my breath during that why did i i'm kind of these are very serious moments uh, in my i guess i'm going with this is because i it's not because there's anything wrong with the movie i don't it's not because there's anything wrong with it it's because i feel like this is one of those movies that while the themes and things are going to be universal it's going to be harder and harder for people to watch it because there's not really mm-hmm. enough context around things to get it, which is really weird considering there's a narrator. I, I feel like, uh, you know, just they're assuming when you watch it that you know that, you know, this is the 40s and this is what they were like. And, and the fact that I asked the very question in the beginning of the movie, because I, I really didn't look up. I didn't look it up. I just watched it, you know, over and over since I was a kid. And I didn't look up that it took place in the 40s, that I had to ask if it was the 40s or 50s. Part of that's like my educational lack, apparently, about that time period. But part of it is just that it it's not contextually there on its own. And so... Well, you know, look, you're saying it's hard to relate to because of the time period, but how much of it, you know, we're, you know, we were born... 40 years after this movie took place, like my parents weren't even kids during this era. Um, how much of it did you, were you able to connect with though? I mean, the themes, the, uh, the experience of being a child, the experience of being a parent, that kind of thing. I mean, it all, you know, still rings true ish. And it's going to be a long, long time before anybody can't relate to the fact that there used to be downtown department stores. Oh, it, it does. It does. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why it just it didn't capture me as much as it did um for whatever reason as a kid I could relate to the parents more because I'm hmm. a parent I could relate to um you know obviously the the holiday workers and stuff because um I've been there in the past and a long, you know a long time ago a holiday worker not necessarily for Santa Claus thing sure. um but you know <laughs> uh I've worked some black fridays some real Black Fridays. <laughs> it's sort of a a look back into a time period that is fun. It is a good look, but I don't know if it was sacred. I don't know if I would call it required viewing for somebody. Well, uh, but as far as this podcast goes, which is never wrong, as as the internet is well aware, <laughs> this movie is not sacred. You know, there are a lot of really great, memorable Christmas movies out there. Um, so if you're not going to watch this one, you can certainly pick one of those. Or go back and watch <laughs> Gremlins. That was very well put. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to watch this one. <laughs> Go watch it. You know, they've made, they've made a lot of movies in history, so you know, you can always watch something, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I I'm I'm pretty glad that we watched this one though. This is one of those things that I think um the internet is is sort of I've seen it kind of a roller coaster 
it's uh, it's one of those where I really did have a question whether um, I thought it was sacred or not because it had been a few years since I watched it and I, I've seen um, people's tweets and things like that. The, the the public opinion over the years has sort of up and down and you see like people like Christmas Story is the best Christmas movie ever. And then you see tweets like Christmas Story is my 101st favorite Christmas movie, meaning like I will not watch it until I watch these other 100 ones, so I will not watch it. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's very interesting how the tides have turned on on this film in particular. There's just so many different personal viewpoints out there. You have to go out and find out which way you feel about this movie. Watch it yourself. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll be right back with your uh, final thoughts and closing. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening to our review of the movie a christmas story and uh it's not sacredicity uh eli thanks for coming on the show as as a real voice instead of just the mysterious editor in the background that makes us sound good what a delight to have you it was great yeah no it's it was a great time thank you for having me and i will happily come back anytime you all want me to well our our, all right happy to come back for our year in review in advance and be our our third chair to talk about what we're going to what we're going to think is going to happen with brand new movies in 2018. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. Yeah, I suppose we ought to check up and see if any of the things we predicted for this year came true or not. I uh, have a bad feeling about our accuracy. Yeah, we'll have to listen to our old episode and see how we did, but uh hey, that's that's the next two episodes coming up. Our, our it's January is our only double month. And we're doing the annual Star Wars episode uh, with some very special guests, uh, Tim Lanning, Jennifer Cheek, Adam Bash, and Michaela Ray. So yeah, we'll be doing that as our, as our first episode. I believe that one's going to drop um, January 17th. And then uh, we also will be doing what we just mentioned with uh, Eli, our year in review in advance, as well as the review of last year's predictions. And we're... The three of us will try to predict what's going to happen in 2018 with the movies that have been announced, and that would drop on January 31st. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and Eli, since he wasn't part of the the 2017 edition of that, can uh, you know laugh and point and and snicker at us of how bad we did for 2017. There will be opportunities. I intend to. Don't worry. <laughs> Eli, where can we find you on on Twitter as well as uh, the podcast that you were talking about earlier, Hoof and Sword? Yeah. So uh, like Mike just said, if you want to hear my voice again, you can check out Hoof and Sword. Uh, We are at Hoof and Sword on Twitter, and you can find me at the Viking Bear underscore underscore. You could also just play this episode again if you want to hear his voice. That too. Or the Arrested Development episode, at least the very, uh, well, no, actually the whole thing. Or the Arrested Development episode. Yeah. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter, and I'm still at not underscore wheat, W-E-E-T underscore Pete. I'm going to change it. So in the meantime, if you can, in the meantime, you may as well just keep tweeting my wife at DirtyMM86. (laughs) Pete, I really don't think you should change it. I'm a fan of randomly placing underscores in various places in your Twitter name. Uh, And I... (laughs) 
I thought I would try my hand at that after learning about your Twitter handle, which has some beautifully, uh, you know, trailing uh, underscores, but I just don't think I pulled it off. I, I think you did great. Like, it's it's phenomenal. And so if, if we were to rate your, your Twitter username, I would vote it sacred. Just saying. <laughs> well, well, shucks. I'll have to reconsider, although uh, you might be in a minority there. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's it's not sacred, mostly not because of the <laughs> uh, the name of the of the handle, but because of the content of the uh, of the handle. Oh, sacred, not sacred. We'll have to call Molly in for a type. <laughs> All right. <laughs> She's the official unofficial referee for Sacred Cows tonight. Yeah, that's right. We should just always call her for that sort of thing. <laughs> oh. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at WhiteMorph. I've been at WhiteMorph forever, and I don't plan on changing it because I think I would just confuse the hell out of people if I did. You can find us, uh, the podcast us, that is, uh, at Sacred Cows Pod on Twitter. That's at Sacred Cows Pod. Uh, you can also uh, find us on your email if you want to send us like a list of movies that you'd like us to review or a bunch of questions or tell us all the various things that uh, you know we got wrong in this podcast because I'm guessing there's at least two or three. Send it to sacredcows at herooftheweb.com or sacredcows at heroofftheweb.com. It doesn't matter. It's all the same word. And finally, uh, it's been a long time since I've asked for this, but we really need your Apple podcast reviews. Um, it's just something that uh, I haven't asked for in a long time, and we really do enjoy reading them. Uh, our most recent one was from our friend Sean Faust, who will be on in February uh, talking about Firefly with us, as long as everything still works out. But um, we want to get more on there, and we want to share them with you. So uh, give us that uh, five-star rating, and if you want to you know, berate us in the comments section, uh, that's cool. We understand how you roll. Be all ironic like that, just like disembodied voice guy. Thanks again for being on our show, Eli. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>